Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Defense Department is looking to its next steps in cloud computing. For instance, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is also planning a big commercial contract award next year. That was one of several developments discussed during the Defense Department's Intelligence Information Systems, or DOTUS, conference in Portland, Oregon last week. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Cloud plans. What is the latest, Justin? Yeah, it's been just over a year since DOD awarded the big joint warfighting cloud capability contract to four of the major vendors, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Oracle. But John Sherman, DOD's chief information officer, says he's already looking at JWCC 2.0. We are, in calendar year 2024, going to start looking at the follow-on contract for JWCC. When we announced JWCC, it's a three-year base with two option years, and we're already into the one-year base of this. And we said all along in 24, in that that time frame, we're going to start looking at what comes next. And no, I don't have a date for the RFP or exactly when this is going to come out, but I will tell you we are firmly committed to multi-cloud, multi-vendor, and this is what we're going to be doing going forward. Again, that's DOD CIO John Sherman speaking at the DOTUS conference in Portland, Oregon last week. Just a reminder, the JWCC deal could be worth up to $9 billion over 10 years if DOD exercises all its options. But Sherman's comments make clear that DOD is not just resting on, on that contract as the future for cloud at DOD. And DOD is using cloud in a variety of ways already and has been for a number of years What did they say that this means for how they plan to use the cloud in the next few years? Yeah, well, JWCC has really been about centralizing and rationalizing all those different cloud services across the department that the military services and agencies have been working on for several years now. And then there's also this push to extend cloud services to the tactical edge, or in other words, extend that connectivity beyond the United States to military units that are operating all over the world. The Defense Information Systems Agency in particular has recently been working on something called the Joint Operational Edge, or Joe Cloud. Sherman calls it a lily pad capability that connects U.S.-based networks to areas like units in the Pacific Ocean areas. And Sherman says they're going to move out on more of those in the future. So that's kind of where DOD is looking these days when it comes to cloud. And were you hearing from the cloud people or basically the CIO types of folks looking at this out at DOTUS? These are the CIO types of folks looking at this out at DOTUS. And of course, the the cloud is kind of laying the groundwork for DOD to take advantage of all these different capabilities folks are talking about, like artificial intelligence. And we heard a lot about that out there as well. In addition to AI, you know, user experience has been a big topic for DOD recently. And one bit of news that came out of DOTUS was DOD has named a head of its new user experience portfolio management office. His name is Savan Kong. He uh, previously served at the Defense Digital Service. And his office, the UX office, is really intended to address those fix our computers issues that came out at the Pentagon earlier this year, all this outdated slow technology that really hampers the workforce. Sherman says his office will soon issue some guidance on that point. Now, I know it's not all about hardware. It's about software, too, and the image on the device and everything else. But having stuff that is more than a few years old isn't going to cut it anymore. And we've all seen the horror stories about the hardware that's way too old. And it's not only the endpoints. It's stuff like routers and switches. 
But we're going to start working on this with the military departments and services and others. We've got to do better than we've been doing in terms of the tech refresh. And hardware business development people take notice there. Also, we mentioned the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. They made some news at DOTUS. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, NGA plans to launch a competition for commercial geo-int data services this January. Vice Admiral Frank Whitworth, director of NGA, says the agency will release a RFP for what's called the Luno A program. It plans to make awards to multiple vendors. Here's Whitworth at DOTUS. The goal is to enable NGA to do two things. Acquire commercial geo-int object detections and leverage industry analytics and automation. I wish I could tell you the amount, but let's just say it's significant. And probably classified, which is why I couldn't specify it further. But these are really important awards for NGA. Yeah, it continues this push where NGA is increasingly turning to commercial sources rather than highly sensitive government sources for the work it does, which is geospatial intelligence, of course. There was a draft RFP for this Luno A contract dropped earlier this year. It says, interestingly, that this is going to be entirely unclassified stuff that NGA is acquiring through this contract, and they're going to keep it on the unclassified networks rather than on the classified government networks. NGA has been buying a lot of commercial space imagery, of course, over the last decade or so. Now they're kind of pushing down into the commercial services and analysis and things like that to acquire commercially as well. So that's kind of the next step here for NGA, and these contracts should be a pretty big push. And I'm guessing this whole DOTUS conference didn't happen without somebody talking about artificial intelligence, and I'll bet the NGA had something to say about that too. Yeah, NGA is also moving forward with multiple AI initiatives. Whitworth talked about a new Frontier project under DOD's High Performance Computing Modernization Program. He says its aim is to develop, quote, the largest and most advanced AI model for Earth observation-based querying. It'll take about four years and millions of hours of computing time. So that's a big one. And then NGA has also taken over Project Maven from the Pentagon. And this is a big program of record now at NGA to use AI and machine learning to uh, analyze geoint data and actually do targeting and things like that. So there's a few different things with AI going on at uh, NGA. All right. So a pretty busy DOTUS. Lots of news. Yeah, yeah. It was a good conference. All right. Well, we're glad you're back. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Tom. And check out all of his DOTUS coverage at federalnewsradio.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.